How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, I got a fun story for you. So last night, um, my daughter and I, my oldest, were sitting on the couch, and um, I don't know what we're doing. We're watching something goofy on YouTube or something, and we're just kind of talking. And she has uh, four different letters because um, Echo, my, my family comes on Saturday night service, and uh, they had her teacher had her write an encouraging letter. They could all pick uh, someone who works at the church and write an encouraging letter to someone on the church staff or church team. And so there was four people in her class that wrote me a letter, and she was one of them. And so I read Aya's first, and it was like, hey, Dad, we had to write a letter to someone, and because you're my dad, I wrote one to you. Anyway, toodles. And that was it. And I was like, and I was like well, that's not very encouraging. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I had to explain to her what obligatory meant. Like, right, you, you were obligated to write this to me, right? So we explained that. And, um, and then the next letter I got, which I actually took a picture and put it on our group me for our, our staff, um, <laughs> this kid wrote, Dear Pastor Mike, and then scratched that out and put Corey. <laughs> Thank you so much for starting the church. And I was like, well, obviously I've made a huge impact on this kid, right? Like, <laughs> thought my name was Mike, and he's like, oh, he's not Mike, you know, and, and uh, scribbled that out and wrote, wrote Corey. So, um, Oddly enough, our lesson today is talking about passing the torch kind of on to people that we have influence over. Uh, so interesting stuff. So if you've never been to the church before, we are in the book of Acts. We've been working through this for quite some time. We're on chapter 20 today, and um, it's the fifth book of the New Testament. If you have a Bible, if you don't, it's fine. There's a notes handout you should have gotten, and you should also have, if you haven't downloaded the app yet, if you click on sermon notes uh, on services, everything's there. So very handy. But let me catch up real quick. So we've been following along Paul, right? Paul is on his third missionary journey. He's been mostly traveling around what is modern-day Turkey, what is modern-day northern and southern Greece, and kind of going in this kind of circle for several years, planting churches, starting groups of Christians, encouraging them, writing them letters, going back and making sure that they're okay. And if you guys have been here during some of this, you've heard virtually every place Paul would go there would be some kind of trouble that would be started. People would resist him and his team. They would push back at them. They would, uh, and we saw in last chapter, chapter 19, a riot started in Ephesus because they were in this city and so many people were becoming Christians that they were worshiping Jesus and they weren't buying these little gold, or I'm sorry, silver shrines made to the god Artemis. And so it was starting to affect certain people's livelihoods because so many people were becoming Christians, and there was a riot started about this. In chapter 19, though, we see that there's this city clerk who would have been the the equivalent of a mayor, who's kind of the unlikely hero of the story. He shows up and calms everyone down and kind of sticks up for the Christians, not for their beliefs, but he defends that they didn't break any laws or anything. But what we talked about from that last week, which I, I think is interesting, is if we're not careful, we can have friendships with the world, right, with people in the world, and we should as Christians. We should build bridges and have relationships in business and the marketplace and, you know, our neighbors, whatever the case may be, with non-believers. But we talked about last week, we have to be careful not to adopt the ideologies of the world, the philosophy of the world, the thinking of the world, okay? So we talked about that if we do start to adopt those things, and if Christians start blending our philosophies and ideologies with the world, that's bad for us. That's not good for our faith. It's not good for us as individuals, okay? That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about something 
very practical, and, and I feel very, very helpful. I, I really enjoy the information we're going to get from chapter 20. This is what we're going to talk about, that if we're going to pour into people that we have influence over, which all of you have influence over someone or multiple people, if we're going to effectively pass the torch, if you will, to hand the light to them and push them to go further than we've gone, if we're going to do that, we have to be filled with God's Spirit. We have to be overflowing with God in order for it to positively impact the people around us. That's what we're going to talk about today, okay? So we're going to do all of chapter 20. It's not going to take us that long. Again, you should have everything in front of you. If you have the app, that's extremely helpful. It has all the scripture and everything. Very, very easy to follow along. If you have a Bible, fifth book of the New Testament, 20th chapter, we'll do the whole thing. There's a lot of fancy names in here that I had to write out phonetically, and um, I'm going to do my best, so... Um, anyway, so if I mess one of those up and you're just, you know, a Greek scholar in here or something, just, you know, don't send me any nasty emails. So, uh, all right. So I'm going to pray. We'll jump into this. And um, I think you'll get a lot from this today. Okay. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Thank you. Lord, I love this church. Um, God, I thank you so much for all the people that came out today. Thank you, Lord, for their dedication and for their, their service and their humility, God. I pray, Lord, that you just teach us something today. Encourage us today, God. Help us, Lord, to be open-minded and objective and, and, and receptive to what we hear. Lord, we pray for every church in our community. We pray for every nonprofit in our community. We pray, God, for the churches that we support in New England and in Uganda and in El Salvador and Colombia and all the places where we're involved, God, that you bless those organizations, those churches. And, and Lord, just help us be everything that you want us to be. Lord, strengthen us today. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Chapter 20, I'm going to read a little bit. And the first part's not super exciting. It's basically a travel log, okay? And so, but we'll, uh, we'll work into some fun stuff here in a second. After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria, so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy and Tychicus, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. <gasps> All right. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days, we reached them at Troas, and we spent seven days. So after the riot that I just talked about earlier from chapter 19, after that took place, the dust had settled, Paul knew he had some other places he needed to go and some other things he needed to do, right? So he was about to split from Ephesus and go through Asia Minor. I'm gonna show you a map here in a second. So Paul's work was done in Ephesus. He needed to catch up with one of his protégés, a guy named Titus in Greece. He needed to collect money and take that money to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So he had some other places to go. Now, just to let you know where we are geographically today, right? If you haven't been here, this kind of helps you kind of know where in the world we're talking about. When it says Asia, it doesn't mean the Asia that we refer to today. It was Asia Minor, which is in Western modern Turkey, modern day Turkey, okay? 
So we're gonna be focusing on this area here. And in a minute, we're gonna hear him go to all these different cities as he moves south through kind of the western side of Turkey, okay? That's where we're at. So he travels over to Greece temporarily and goes to a town called Corinth, where we get First and Second Corinthians. And there the Jews plotted against him. The ones that don't like Paul, they got together and they're gonna make his life rough, right? So he decides to backtrack a different direction and on his way, he writes a very famous book of the Bible called Romans. He writes that. Actually, on Paul's third missionary trip, he wrote six books of the Bible. He wrote Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the book of 1 Timothy, Romans, and Titus, all within a couple of years' span on this third missionary trip. Just a fun fact for you. Another thing that he did on this trip is he collected money. Now, I know we get uncomfortable about talking about money in church, and we, we shouldn't, quite honestly, as long as the church is using it correctly. But what they did was this. Paul would go to different areas that were more affluent. That doesn't mean that everyone in the area was affluent, but like Murfreesboro, this is a pretty affluent town. We, we live a pretty good standard of living here. That he would go to churches in areas like that and collect money for people in other areas that didn't have as much. They didn't have the resources that these other areas did. We learn from this that the church is not just, uh, uh, just in one geographical location. The church is global. We also learn that people like you and I that have been blessed with a lot, I'm not talking about communism, I'm talking about Christianity here, that when we've been blessed with a lot, we are also responsible to share that blessings with those who haven't been given a lot. That's not a mandate from the government, it's a mandate from Jesus. And so we take those resources, I'm talking about us, and we give them to 260 orphans in Togo, Africa. We give them to people in Uganda. We give them to people in El Salvador. We give them even to different places in the United States, Massachusetts and New Hampshire and Vermont, and pretty soon Albany, New York. We give them to these areas because they don't have the resources that we've been blessed with here. And that we should do that with joy. That's a wonderful thing. Because just because our brother lives in Africa, they're still our brother, right? And we should be pulling our resources to help the ones that need it. You guys are awfully quiet, right? Okay, so anyways. So Paul took a large group of men with him. Why? Because he had a lot of cash with him. He couldn't just like Western Union it back to Jerusalem, right? So he had a team of guys with him, and they did a couple of different things. One, they offered protection for him. You're traveling with a bunch of money, it's good to have some men with you to, to make sure that, that, that it doesn't get stolen, right? The second reason why this, this group of men that I just listed is important is because when he got to Jerusalem, this group of people that he brought with him displayed the diversity of Christianity across the world now. It wasn't just former Jews, I know they're Jews by blood, but people who formerly worshiped Judaism, right? Now it is all of these diverse group of individuals different backgrounds, different uh, family situations and religious backgrounds. We also notice that we pick up our friend Luke who wrote this book in this chapter, right? He's back on the team, okay? Now we get into some fun stuff. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But when Paul went down, he bent over him, embraced him, and said, 
don't be alarmed because he's alive. After going upstairs, they broke bread, they ate. Paul talked for a long time until dawn. Then he left and they brought the boy home alive and they were greatly comforted. So, Here's one of the, the, the several references in the New Testament about people worshiping on Sunday, not Saturday. Typically, most of the Jews that would become Christians still worshiped on what was considered the Sabbath day, Saturday. But I'll get to that here in a second. One of the things we see here is this. We see the fundamentals of what this should be in this passage. They got together, they worshiped, they heard teaching from someone who, who knew about the word, and they took communion together. These are kind of the three basic functions of the gathering, the church gathering. Not of what the church does in the community, but what we do when we get together. We worship, we hear the word of God, we take communion. Pretty simple stuff. We also see that a lot of people worked on Sundays in this culture. So not only did they move it from Saturday to Sunday, they started having services at night. The reason why they did that is Paul knew that the church gathering times had to be flexible because people's secular lives often weren't flexible. Now, what do we get from that? Why is that important? It's important because when God says to honor the Sabbath, it's not necessarily a day that he's focused on. It's not that one day is any more holy than the others. I get a kick out of Southern Christians sometimes. They're just like, well, Sunday's the Sabbath. It's not the original Sabbath. That was Saturday, right? So our Saturday crowd thinks they're a lot more spiritual than you guys anyways. But um, that's not true. But what's interesting is it's not the idea that one day is holier than another day. It's the idea that God wants us to take the time to get together corporately, to worship, to read the word of God, and to remember him through communion. It doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday, a Saturday, or New Vision just started doing a service on, on Thursday. There's nothing less holy about Thursday than Sunday. It's making it convenient so more people can come in and we can worship together. That's the point of the Sabbath. Not that there's one day of the week that's better than the rest. And so the services were not only at night. People had worked during the day, just like a lot of you have to work, right? They went long into the night, and they were in rooms that were lit by lamps, which would have depleted the oxygen a lot. It sounds like I'm making excuses for this kid that fell asleep during service, right? So this kid, though, has probably worked all day, it's late at night. There's not a lot of oxygen in the room. There's a lot of people and lamps. So this kid falls asleep and falls three stories to his death. Now, here's what's ironic. Eutychus literally means good luck. <laughs> See, tell me there's no funny parts of the Bible. Hey, good luck just fell out of the window to his death, right? So it's interesting. <laughs> this kid falls asleep and, and cracks his head, it looks like, right? And, and ends up dead. So the three-story fall kills this young man. The crowd goes downstairs to check on him, right? He just fell, you know, at least 30 feet or so. They check on him. Paul grabs him and embraces him. We can assume that he prayed for him, right? Prayed for God to raise this kid from the dead, and he does. The kid miraculously comes back to life. Now, some commentaries believe he was just unconscious. My Bible says he was dead. If you fall from three stories, you're probably going to die, right? So I, I think he was dead, and miraculously healed. Now, what's fascinating about this is how nonchalantly Luke, the author of Acts, talks about this. Hey, one day we were just listening to Paul preach, and he was going for a really long time, and this kid Eutychus falls out of a window, dies, but Paul prayed for him. We went upstairs, got a snack, and we just listened to Paul preach for a couple more hours. <laughs> just another day in the life of Paul, right? 
I mean, like, just kind of like nonchalantly tells the story. And we think, and we're like, wow, so they listened to him until the sun came up? Imagine how alive and imagine how much energy one would have if you just saw a kid fall to his death, miraculously come back. You're probably like, Paul, tell us more about this Jesus, right? This is crazy. So they listened to him until the morning, right? Now here's where it gets really, really practical and really, really good. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul on board because, they, uh, because these were his instructions, since he himself was going by land. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went on to Mytilene. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off Chios. The following day, we crossed over to Samos, and the next day we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit has warned me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now, here's where we get some really good stuff. So Paul stayed in an area called Troas, which is south of Ephesus, and he basically continued to work his way south of Ephesus, okay? Paul was eager to get down to the shore, hop on a ship, and go back to Jerusalem so he could celebrate Pentecost, right? The, the, the feast that commemorated the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit, okay? So he calls for the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he wants to share with them one more lesson before he leaves them forever. Now, here's the train of thought we're going to travel on it until the end of this lesson, okay? Paul wanted to get these people that he's been pouring his blood, sweat, and tears into for three years, get them together and remind them, not only did I teach you about Jesus, I modeled a life that follows Christ. Not perfect, but I modeled following Jesus to the best of my abilities. So what he was saying is, don't just do what I tell you to do, do what I have modeled for you to do. He said he had credibility because he had displayed in his day-to-day -day life integrity, that he served them, that he was humble, that he sacrificed for them. Now listen, here's the thing. A bumper sticker, a tattoo, and a Facebook post will not change the world. Everyone understands that, right? You know no one cares as much about your Facebook post as you do, right? Everyone knows this. Not one post is going to change the world's trajectory, change your neighborhood, change your family. What is going to touch the hearts of mankind is not just talking about our faith all the time, but living a life that models Jesus Christ to the world around us. 
It is to not just put a post. It's not to get a tattoo or a sticker or whatever the case may be. It is to go out and model Christ to the people who are looking at you and to the people that you have influence over. Now, if you don't know where to begin with that, let me give you a very, very practical tip. Paul said, I did this with servitude and with humility. I served Jesus with all humility. Servitude and humility are at the bedrock of Christian living. Without these two things, listen, you cannot be a Christian. Well, that sounds pretty dramatic, doesn't it? If you meet a Christian who is arrogant, they're not a Christian. One cannot follow Christ in arrogance. Where do I get that from? The Bible says that God pushes away from the arrogant and draws near to the humble. So if one is arrogant and claims to follow Christ, they're not as close to Christ as they claim to be. If one claims to follow Christ but doesn't serve their fellow man, we're also not looking like Jesus because Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve you. So in order to look like Christ, we must be servant-minded and we must be humble. These are two fundamental characteristics of being a follower of Jesus. Now, look at, Paul's going to take us on a journey right here, okay? Not only did Paul model these things, he did talk about them. He clearly taught the teachings of Jesus. He knew that people would be bombarded by false teachings. He knew that people would be bombarded by idolatry. And in order for people to be saved, listen to me, in order for people to be saved, I don't just act like Jesus. I have to tell people why my life has changed. I have to tell people that Jesus is the one that has saved me and Jesus is the one that will save them. And we often say, hey, we're just going to act like Jesus, but I don't want to cram Jesus down people's throat. I don't want to offend people. Listen, if you're driving off a cliff, I'm going to do everything in my power to grab the steering wheel from your hands. I'm going to do everything I can to share with you the knowledge that will not only save your life here on earth, but will save your soul for eternity. And if I love you, I'm going to tell you what the key is to having a good afterlife. I'm doing a great disservice to anyone that I claim to love if I do not blatantly tell them about Jesus Christ. Doing a huge disservice. So he keeps on going. Paul said he modeled Jesus he talked about Jesus. He also talked about sin. And we don't like to do that either, right? So look at the whole objective. Look at what Paul is telling us to do. We are to live the teachings of Jesus. We're to tell others about Jesus. We're to clearly identify what is wrong. Now, we don't stop there, right? Because that's kind of a downer, right? We don't stop there. We go on to say that Jesus died for you even though you were doing those wrong things and that he will forgive you of sin, and that he will equip you to make lifestyle changes so you can live a more fulfilling life here in a great eternity with him. So he goes on. He identifies sin, talks about repentance. And Paul says, I do this regardless of what it's going to cost me. Regardless of how many times I get my butt kicked, regardless of how many cities run me out. Look at what he says. He says, I'm going to do this, and I know that there's going to be afflictions waiting for me. Why is he going to do it? He says he is compelled by the Spirit, compelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, the key to achieving what God wants us to achieve when we're compelled by the Holy Spirit is, comes in the next phrase that Paul says. Paul says, I consider my life of no value to itself. Basically, he says, apart from God, I am a waste of a life. That's what Paul says. My life is worthless apart from God, worthless apart from Jesus. So when we start to understand, you and I, 
When we start to understand that we are nothing without God and only with God can we achieve anything good, that's when we can start to do what God wants us to do. That's when we can start pouring into people and being the light that God wants us to be. That's when we can start being responsible. Okay, next part. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I didn't avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in after you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I have never stopped warning each of you with tears. So Paul was convinced this was going to be the last conversation he was ever going to get to have with his friends from Ephesus, the last time. In light of that, this is what he's going to do. Paul is essentially saying, I have done everything I can to hand you this torch. I have taught you everything I know. I have lived the best life I could live. I've put my blood and my sweat and my tears. He says tears several times. I've poured this into you. This is all I can do. Now at that point, we learn that we are responsible for the knowledge that we have. After you leave here today, everything you've heard me talk about today, you are responsible for the knowledge that God has just shown you this morning. Not only are we responsible for the knowledge that God has given us, we are responsible for sharing that knowledge to people that don't have it yet. We're responsible for it, and we're responsible to give it. So Paul encourages them. He says, be on guard for yourselves. Watch out, because we are sheep among wolves. A, a, a different metaphor that Jesus also used, right? We are sheep among wolves, so watch out. Don't just watch out for yourselves, though. He says, watch out for the flock around you. Watch out for your brothers and sisters, the people that you've been appointed to look after. And though Paul in this chapter is talking to church leaders, pastors, people who are leading the church, every single one of you in this room, every single one of you, I don't care how old or young you are, at one time or another, God will put people under your care. Those of you who are parents, it should be loud and clear, right? God has put people under your care to oversee, to look after, to influence in a positive way, to keep them safe. That's what we are called to do. So here's where we get real practical. Paul reminds the Christians that you are precious. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're extremely valuable. So protect each other, lead people into a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the last thing he says, warn them, warn them that there are false teachers, even people among you that will teach false things. He says, warn each other what is right and wrong. Warn each other what unrighteous living will do. And again, guys, we're always so afraid to warn each other. But man, if you see me flirting with a woman that's not my wife, you come up because you love me and tell me, Man, if you keep doing that, it's going to destroy your family. It will destroy this church. It will mess up your life. You're not hurting my feelings by doing that. You're loving me by doing that. So we warn each other. We guard. We protect. We lead. 
We look out for other sheep in the flock because there are wolves all around us. Last part. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. After he said this, he knelt down and prayed with them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul leaves the Ephesian leaders with probably the most important reminder. He said, look, I've worked with, three, worked with you for three years. I've given you everything I've got, but it's not me that saved you. It's not me that has changed your life. It's not me that has changed your cities. It is God. God has done it. And so as Christians, listen, here's what we're called to do. As Christians, we're called to build relationships, we're called to cultivate, we're called to nurture, we're called to educate and assist to the best of our abilities, but we cannot make people's lives change. It is God that makes that happen. It is God that changes people. It is God that saves people and carries people through. We just help, we just plant the seed, but it is God that does the work. Paul also reminds us that he didn't covet people's gold or silver or clothing. And what this shows us is it is easy for Christians to be enticed by the pleasures and the materialism of the world. Guys, I'm going to give you guys some grace. It's no wonder that so many Christians are materialistic and shallow and covetous because we have created houses of worship that are materialistic and covetous. You go into most churches, I, I'm just going to expose to you how much of a jerk that I am. I'll go into fancy, opulent, decadent churches, you know, I mean, like, like this one, right? You know, like, anyways, I'll go into fancy, opulent, decadent churches, and all I do is look up and I'm like, man, I could have fed a lot of homeless people for that. Man, I could have fed, we could have sponsored 250 more kids in Africa if they just would have got rid of that. Man, if they would have got cheaper carpet, we could have built a homeless shelter in this town. Like, right? You go through all these things. And you start, so it's no wonder we have materialistic Christians. We have materialistic pastors. We have materialistic, opulent, decadent, ridiculous churches all over the place. And we've become covetous, right? You guys know that's a Ten Commandment, right? That we're not supposed to look at other people's belongings and be jealous and want those things. You guys know that's one of the ten fundamental disciplines of the Christian faith. You guys know that. In 2016, everyone forgot that, Right? Everyone's like, man, we need to take from those rich people because I don't have those things. That is a 10 commandment. If they're rich, that is between them and God and what they do with their money and their finances. And it's not ours to get involved in. Now, should God convict rich people to be benevolent? Yes, but I'm not going to do that because the Bible tells me not to do that. So we need to be careful looking at other people's things and being covetous of that, right? And so we have so many Christians that act this way because, quite frankly, churches have not done a good job of modeling that we shouldn't be materialistic. We shouldn't be coveting others' things because those are sins, and they are not characteristics of the Christian. They are not. So here's what Paul does. Look at this final scene of chapter 20. It's, it's pretty sad. So he's sitting here at the dock, right? The boat is there. The ramp goes up to the boat. 
And these people that he has given everything to, he has been beaten for them. He's been run out of town for them. He suffered all kinds of horrible things spoken about him and riots have been started because of him. And he looks at these people and he knows he's never gonna see them again. And they hug each other. I love this, it's so beautiful. It says that they hugged him and they would kiss his face because they didn't wanna let him go. They didn't wanna let him go. So he knew that he had taught them, he had trained them, he had led them, and most importantly, he had loved them well. And he wanted to give them the light And here's what he wanted to do. He wanted them to take that light, and he says, now you take it. Now you go light up your families and your schools and your workplaces and your city. Take this light that I've given you and take it further than I ever took it. Take it and run with it. And then he hopped on a boat, and he sailed away. So here's what we get from chapter 20. We are called, every single one of you in this room, At some point in your life, there will be people that look up to you, and we are to take the light that we've been given, the knowledge and the skills and the Holy Spirit that God has given us, we are to take that and we are to pass that on to the ones that look up to to us. The way that we are to do that is we are to model the Christian faith more than we just talk about the Christian faith. Dad, don't just talk about how your kids should be good Christians. Pray with them every single night. Show them the word of God. Teach them how to pray. Let them see you being affectionate towards your wife. Let them see you working hard, but also spending time with them. Model for them what Jesus wants us to be. Mothers, model to other people around you how you respect and revere your husband. Women, whenever you talk about your husband, whenever you put your husband down, you are blatantly breaking Ephesians chapter five. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you have a criticism, take him aside by himself. Model to people what a healthy marriage should look like, how to raise your children, how to have a good attitude. Don't just talk about it. Live those things. Because God has given us the responsibility to guard people. It means protect them. To shepherd people, which means direct them. This whole like free-range parenting thing that's somehow catching traction is garbage. Right? Why? Because four-year-olds don't make wise decisions. (laughs) If it was up to my five-year-old, we would eat sugar all day. I'm not talking about things made of sugar, raw sugar. (laughs) We would shove it in our face and watch movies about unicorns all day, right? (laughs) But that's not good for my daughter, so I direct her in a different way. That's what God has called us to do, not just guard and protect, but lead people down the paths that they should. That's why the Bible says, lead your children in the ways of the truth and they will come up right, right? That they will come back to the Father. We are to lead them. And we are also to warn people. Show them what's right and wrong. You may lose friendships over that. You may lose business deals over that. You may not be the most popular person, but neither was Christ. We show people what is right and wrong people that we have influence over. And in this way, this is how we love people correctly. We don't even know what the word love means anymore. We'll talk about loving our girlfriend and loving our iPhone in the same paragraph, right? Corey, I love this girl. What's her middle name? I don't know, but I love her. No, you don't, right? You just lust after her right now. So we don't even know what that word means anymore. But if we're to love correctly, we do these things. We model We guard, we shepherd, we warn, we love them well. And we do this, listen to me, this is very important for some of you in this room. 
We do this with the intention of handing that light to the next generation or the next people coming after us so they can take it further than we ever could have dreamed we could have. Where do we get this, this idea from? We actually get it from Jesus. There's a huge misconception about something Jesus says in the gospel. Jesus says you're going to do greater things than I even did. He's not referring to miracles. That's what a lot of people think. We're gonna do greater miracles than Jesus. Impossible. You're not going to get murdered and resurrect yourself. There's no greater miracle. Just letting you guys know that. Not gonna happen. The greater thing that Jesus was referring to is he said, I just stayed in a little bitty 150 mile radius. You're going to take this message to the entire globe. You're going to take what I've given you and you're going to take it to a lot of people. That's what he meant. That's what the father does for their child. They give them the light and they say, look, I built a church of, you know, whatever. You go take a church and build it four times bigger, right? I've built this business to this. You take it and expand it so much further. I have shown you what a healthy marriage looks like. I want your marriage to be so much healthier. I've shown you what it looks like to raise a child. I want you to raise your child even better. You hand this light to them in the hopes that they will take it further than you ever did. Now, we can only do that if we are absolutely not just full of God's Spirit, overflowing with God's Spirit. Imagine, if you will, a, a whole pyramid set up of champagne glasses, right? There's one on top, and from that, it goes, I don't know, as far as your imagination will let it go. Now, what happens is if we fill that top one up, 99% with champagne, right? We fill it up 99%. All the glasses that fall underneath it are still empty. But if we continue to pour and to pour and to pour into that one glass on top, it fills up four and then eight and then 16 and then 32 and then 64. And you get the picture. It goes on and on and on. As long as it is constantly being filled up, it can constantly pour out and it touches so many things it gets into so many glasses that by the time it gets to the bottom, we don't know how many people it's affected yet. It's the same thing with our lives. If we're going to positively impact maybe the three or four people closest to us or the eight or 12 that are around us or the 16 or 18 at work or whatever the case may be, we're not just filled with the Spirit. We must be constantly poured into by God. It trickles down to the people below us and it changes the world around us. It changes our marriages. It changes our dynamics with our kids. It changes schools and it changes governments and it changes marketplaces and it affects everything around us. But it all is contingent on us being constantly poured into by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the problem is this. Many of us have been misdirected. We've become selfish, right? We don't want our cup overflowing, but we want it just full enough to make us feel good. Or we have filled our cup up with things that are not of God. Those things have spilled over. And what has that done for us? It's made divorce go out the roof. It's made children run wild. It's let people go homeless. It's let churches fall apart and marketplaces be corrupt. It's let all of these repercussions of us being full of evil things that pour out. So the bottom line is we have improperly fed ourselves. But if we don't get a handle on this, men in this room, mothers in this room, employers in this room, students in this room, 
If you don't start taking some practical steps to be full of the Holy Spirit of God, it's not just going to be you who suffers. It's going to go on, and the further it goes, the more people it damages. But on the flip side of that, if we will be full of the Spirit of God, it doesn't just affect you. It overflows from you and for generations and generations and generations, and the pyramid gets bigger and bigger until God only knows until we get to heaven how many people's hearts that we've touched indirectly. Now, how do we do this? Very anticlimactic. I'm going to end this on a very boring note. How do we be full of God's Spirit? You guys already know this. You pray. You talk to God. You meditate. I don't mean that in a weird Eastern way, right? But you get alone and you shut everything down and you cut out the distractions and you let God speak to you. How do you do it? You find Christians that you can hang out with and have good community with them. You worship. You do these simple steps. You get in closer proximity to God and the closer we are to God, the more he fills us up and it runs over and it touches everyone around us. But we have to be diligent about this because a glass can only spill what it contains. Some of you are like, man, I don't have anything else to give. You need to get filled up. I don't have anything else to contribute. You need God to fill you up to where it boils over. I'm spent, I'm depleted. You need to get closer to Jesus. I've noticed in my own personal life, when I'm not the husband I need to be, when I'm not the father I need to be, when I'm not the pastor that you need me to be, it is simply because I have not been as close to Jesus as I need to be. It is all about our proximity to God and his throne. That's what it's all about. That's how we get filled up, okay? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and you are not a believer, you're not a believer, I just want to challenge you, and I don't mean that in a combative, mean way. I just want to, I want to challenge you to think about something. If you're in this room and you're not a believer, I want you to ask yourself, have the things I have filled myself up with, are they giving me contentment and joy? <laughs> I'm not talking about like what sex does in the moment or what taking a hit of whatever does in the moment. I'm talking about long-lasting contentment and joy. Are the things that you have been filling yourself up with, are they giving you the results in life that you want? And only you'll know the answer to that. If they're not... I want to challenge you to look for something else. Be open-minded to what I've talked about today. If you are in here and you are a Christian, but you feel spent, you feel empty, you feel depleted, you feel like you just don't have any more to give, listen, I can empathize with you. I've been where you're at. I was there just a couple of months ago. But let me tell you what the answer is. It's simple, but we need to be deliberate when we do it. You have got to get closer to Jesus. Not just because you need it, but the people that look up to you need it as well. The people at your workplace need it. Your spouse needs it. Your kids need it. Your school needs it. MTSU needs it. It's not just you. There are other people looking at you. And we've got to give them the light and we've got to hope that they take it to more people than we did. There'll be people up here at the front to pray for you if you need it. All the way around you is communion. Listen to me as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. The communion around you, 
represents Jesus Christ's body and blood that he gave, he died for us while we were still sinners, but he also resurrected so we could be full of his spirit and that it could overflow. That's what that represents. You can ask God to forgive you, you can take communion, and you can pray, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Equip me, God. I wanna be closer to you so I can, I can positively impact those around me. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you. My prayer, Lord, for every single person in this room, God, is that you not only fill us with your spirit, but you continue to pour into us so it overflows and it just, it just bleeds onto everyone around us, God. Lord, I know for a fact there are people in this room who feel tired. I pray, God, that you give them rest. I pray that you give them sustenance, God. I pray, Lord, that you fill them up and encourage them and equip them, God. Lord, we love you, and you are gracious, and you are good, and you're a perfect Father that gives us everything we need. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you guys so, so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.